You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I've talked a lot on the show about what I've called the empathy gap, the inability of a lot of conservatives and Republicans to kick their moral imagination into gear. When your kid is gay and your kid wants to marry or your kid's family is vulnerable because they're gay and can't marry, fuck you and your gay kid. When my gay kid comes out, I'm for gay marriage. When my husband has Alzheimer's disease and I'm Nancy Reagan, suddenly I'm for stem cell research. When it was your husband with uh, a disease that might be cured via stem cell research. Fuck you and your husband. When you get addicted to drugs, fuck you and you should go to jail. When I get addicted to drugs, I'm Rush Limbaugh. Suddenly I'm for treatment over incarceration because my ass got addicted to drugs. We talk about the empathy gap a lot, the failure of moral imagination on the part of so many conservatives and Republicans that they can't see their shared humanity in others who are in different circumstances, whether we're talking about queer people, whether we're talking about immigrants documented, undocumented, whether we're talking about the people suffering in Puerto Rico right now, the empathy gap, the failure of moral imagination. And I have railed against Republicans for that empathy gap, for that failure of moral imagination, for their failure, their inability, their seeming inability to see what they have in common with their fellow Americans, some of whom are very, very different. And in the interest of brutal honesty, I am guilty of that failure in moral imagination myself, it seems, today. I wept after the massacre at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. I wept after the massacre at Sandy Hook because I'm gay. I was once that queer kid who only felt safe one place in the world, inside a gay bar surrounded by other gay people, the only place I Truly felt safe and truly felt I could be myself and all those queer kids, Latin queer kids at that queer night, mowed down by a gunman in that one place where so many of them felt safe and I wept. And after Sandy Hook, I wept because I, I am a parent and I would drop my kid off at school. And every parent who drops their kid off anywhere, a park to play, a play date, school, uh, leaves them at home with a babysitter, you leave with a little twinge, a little sense of worry, a little sense of... Dread for the worst case scenario. I have worst case scenario disorder. I'm always turning worst case scenarios over in my head and there is no worst case scenario for a parent than what happened at Sandy Hook. And I wept. And this morning reading about the shooting, the massacre in Las Vegas last night, I am ashamed to say that my eyes were dry because I didn't for a moment, for the first few moments, I didn't recognize my shared humanity. I experienced that empathy gap. This was a country music festival. These are some part of my reptile brain said to me, dry eyes. These are not your people. And of course they are my fucking people. They're my fellow Americans. They're my fellow human beings who are mowed down. And so I have to take responsibility right now. And I'm taking it right now for the failure, my failure briefly failure of my moral imagination to kick into gear, my failure to recognize instantly my shared humanity with these people who are mowed down in Las Vegas by this deranged gunman who had 10 rifles or more in his hotel. How do you get 10 rifles up into a hotel room and pick them off from balcony 58 now known to be dead, 500 injured. I wept eventually. I'm ashamed to say I didn't weep immediately. And here we are 
What do we do? What can we do? Beyond guns, which are absolutely, absolutely necessary to address and dramatically restrict access to, Josh Marshall wrote this morning at Talking Points Memo, we need to recognize that we don't have mass violence only because of guns. We have so many guns because America is a deeply violent society that goes back generations. We have recurrent massacres because we are awash in firearms and also because we are a deeply violent society. Nothing so deeply rooted in our culture can be easily changed, but we could change it. We cannot and do not because at the end of the day, we accept it. And sometimes we cannot and do not because at the end of the day, all of us are susceptible to that failure of moral imagination, susceptible to failing to bridge that empathy gap. And I myself was susceptible to that impulse this morning. And I am, as I said, ashamed of myself. But what can we do? I don't know. At this point on the left, we all say in Americans is a kind of learned helplessness. What can we do if we couldn't change the gun laws after Littleton, after Aurora, after Orlando? The odds that they're going to change after Vegas, I think, are vanishingly slim. Nothing is going to change until that blessed day comes when we finally pry Congress out of the cold, dead hands of the National Rifle Association. And I have a hard time when I peer out at the horizon seeing that day coming ever. And so there will be more massacres. We will have more mornings like this. I went to bed last night hearing that there was a shooting in Las Vegas, thought it would be, you know, we've had 217 mass shootings in 2017 alone, thinking it would be one of those unremarkable mass shootings that would just be added to that total. Look at what it takes to break through. Look at what it takes to make the national news. There was another mass shooting yesterday where seven people died. That didn't even make a blip. That didn't even register. It takes this. It takes mass violence and mass terror. And then what do we get? We get the thoughts and prayers brigades from Donald J. Trump. We get flags at half mast and praise for first responders and praise. Yes, deservedly so for first responders, but maybe first responders would have less to respond to and they would themselves have to put their own lives on the line less often if we had sane gun control. Like Josh Marshall said, we need to address and dramatically restrict access to guns, to create a safer society. One of our founding fathers said, the tree of liberty sometimes needs to be watered with the blood of tyrants. We are told by conservatives and gun humpers that freedom means guns. I am sick to death of seeing the tree of liberty watered with people to go into the movies, little kids going to school, people who love country music gathering in Las Vegas, my fellow Americans who love country music gathering in Las Vegas to celebrate to party together, to enjoy their passion for country music. I am sick to death of seeing their blood poured all over the tree of liberty. What we've heard from conservative politicians in the past is it's too soon. Don't politicize this tragedy. Well, let's have a discussion about gun control, but let's pretend we're talking about Littleton. Let's pretend we're talking about Aurora. Let's pretend we're talking about Pulse. Let's pretend we're talking about any of the other 217 mass shootings this year so far, and not this one. We can never begin to have the conversation about gun control because there is always another mass shooting that just happened or is just about to happen. So pick one from the last 10 years and let's talk about that one while we talk about gun control. Also, the conservative bromide, the conservative prescription. Remember after Pulse? 
right-wing commentators, right-wing assholes all over Twitter were saying, ah, if only those liberal queer baits in that bar had been armed, if only that was a gay bar full of open carry advocates and practitioners, they could have pulled their guns out and fired blindly into the dark at where they thought maybe the shots might be coming from, take out the shooter and save the day. It's the right-wing fap, 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 NRA hero fantasy that never seems to come true. What was the prescription for the victims, the 58 and the 500 in Las Vegas? Shots ringing out from a hotel balcony. I guess if there had been three or 400 people at the festival with high-powered rifles, they could have turned, pulled their weapons out, and began to fire blindly at the Mandalay Bay Hotel, guessing which room the gunfire was coming from. Oh, by the way, did you know the NRA? Currently, the only gun legislation before Congress is a bill to allow for people to put silencers on their weapons and their rifles to make silencers legal, which would have made locating the shooter even harder for those first responders Donald Trump praised yesterday. Yeah, I don't think that would have worked. What would work is what works in every other civilized, sane democracy in the world. Gun control, restrictive gun control. You've heard, if you've been a long time listening to the show, you've heard me say this before. Gun owners who listen to my show, you live in a country where any idiot any dangerous, violent fucking nutbag can get their hands on a gun. So when we hear someone has a gun, we don't think safe, responsible, trained patriot. We think potential lunatic who might kill me and my whole family. Don't you gun owners want to live in a world where the bar is set high for gun ownership that if you own a gun, that really means something? That means you've had firearm training? That means you're the kind of person we want around in a crisis or an emergency? as opposed to the kind of person who is most likely to cause that crisis or cause that emergency, you would think gun owners, people who value guns most, would want to see the bar set high for gun ownership. That is not the case. Because the NRA, which has bamboozled gun owners, doesn't work for gun owners. It doesn't work for Americans. It works for gun companies. It works for the merchants of death. Stocks for gun manufacturers jumped at the news of this massacre. Because every time there's a massacre, more guns are sold. Anyway, I'm just spinning my wheels. Nothing is going to change. We didn't change anything after Littleton. We didn't change anything after Aurora. We didn't change anything after Orlando. Nothing is going to change after Las Vegas because of the power of the National Rifle Association and the Republican Party that it purchased and carries around in its pocket. One day we will pride Congress and the White House and governors and state legislators out of the cold, dead hands of the NRA. Till that day, more shootings, more massacres, more failures of moral imagination on both parts, on both sides, more dead Americans, another fresh pile in Las Vegas. All right, coming up on today's show, lots of your relationship questions, lots of my relationship answers, and joining us on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, ad-free and twice as long. You can subscribe to it at savagelovecast.com. Erica Moen of Oh Joy Sex Toy, here to share a sex toy recommendation. Hey, Dan. I'm 27. I've been married to my husband for two years, and we dated for several years before marriage. I love him very much. He's my best friend. However, his job recently took him away during weekdays for a nearly three-month period of time. During this time, I picked up a habit of camming, and I quickly became very invested in it. I'm not sure when I consciously made the decision to do this. It just happened, and I fell deep into a rabbit hole of fantasy and fetish. Particularly, I became fascinated by light BDSM and playing a subordinate role. 
I've always been a sexual and flirtatious person, but I've always adhered to the view that my relationship with my husband is monogamous. This camming habit allowed me to have the best of both worlds, a loyal relationship and also alternative sexual satisfaction. It was also an outlet for me and a means of self-expression. I had an entire alter ego built around it. It filled a void that I didn't even know existed. It gave me confidence and energy, made me feel amazing. It also breathed new life into my sex life with him. We explored kinks in new ways and it was awesome. All the sexual energy and confidence that I gained from camming spilled into our sex life, which was good before, but now it was better than ever. I didn't tell my husband that I was camming because I knew he wouldn't be okay with it. I was of course caught and I stopped at his request. Ever since he has been struggling with his feelings about the situation and so have I. He wavers between wanting to help me fill the void through creative sexual exploration with him alone to beating himself up over what he perceives as his own inability to satisfy me, to struggling with issues of trust and Googling my cam girl username. He's admitted that he has a problem with this and he has to overcome it. This whole situation has me feeling lost and trapped and somewhat ashamed. I miss my habit and I know that I may never have that back. Even if he was okay with it, the fact that he's aware of it and may be hyper-involved with it, if it were ever allowed again, makes it unappealing. I choose him first. I empathize with his feelings. I don't want to hurt him, and I'm not sure that he can separate fantasy from reality in the same way that I can. We're both struggling in our own ways. The void that was filled by this habit is now even larger, and I don't really know where to go from here. So any advice that you can offer would be appreciated. There's a lot going on here, but I really want to address something you said toward the end of your question. Him knowing that you're doing this, if you were to start doing it again. Him knowing makes it unappealing. There's something about his consent. There's something about his buy-off and perhaps his participation around the edges or margins that ruins this for you. To me, that says that this persona and this kind of career, this little mini career, this sideline in camming was as much about the kinks that you were able to explore in this kind of safe way at this remove at this distance uh, and the adventure as it is about the autonomy and wanting a zone of sexual expression that is yours alone, that isn't about your husband, where you get to be just you, not a pair, not half a couple, but you yourself alone, a persona that is separate and distinct from your persona as a married woman, as his wife and him as your husband. And that was important to you. And you seized that. That's how that happened. You say, it just happened. How'd that happen? It happened because you did it. It happened because you needed it. It happened because you went and did it. And I'm a little annoyed or I just want to draw your attention to early in the call when you kind of pin a little bit of the blame or responsibility for what you chose to do on him for taking this job that took him out of town for three months ago. And you sort of throw that out there as if that explains or justifies this choice that you made, which really wasn't about him going out of town. It really wasn't. I think you might have likely done this at some point. Maybe him going out of town created a kind of erotic vacuum that sucked this out of you, but this was coming. You needed this. You needed this autonomous zone of sexual self-expression and sexual self-creation. And you got it. And now it's gone. And I think that's the conversation you need to have with your husband. He says that he worries that he's not able to satisfy you totally. And the difficult conversation you have to have with him is that, yeah, that's true just as you aren't capable of satisfying him sexually in every respect. One person can't be all things to another person sexually. And a lot of time and effort is wasted, a lot of grief and conflict created in relationships when we have to pretend that that's the case. And when we police each other for evidence of what we should just accept to be true 
that of course you have desires and fantasies that don't involve me. Even if we have a monogamous commitment that we both are endeavoring to honor and sustain, yeah, I'm attracted to other people. Yeah, I contain erotic multitudes and there's parts of my sexual desires, the sexual self-expression or part of my sexual interests or my inner erotic life that don't involve you and couldn't involve you. You know, I know gay guys. I was talking to a gay guy this weekend whose boyfriend is roughly his age. They've been together forever. They're getting married. He also has fantasies about big burly daddies fucking the shit out of him. Well, his boyfriend that he loves very much that he's in a monogamous relationship with and committing to and marrying can't fulfill that part of his fantasy life. Can't be that to him. And he masturbates about that sometime and watches some like gnarly big burly daddy fucking boy porn to scratch that itch. And it makes his boyfriend feel a little insecure because he can never meet that need. And you know what? You can never meet that need. I I literally said that to his boyfriend. We were talking in the street. You can never meet that need. And so you have to let that go. And you need to be insecure about it if you want to be insecure about it. But it's a waste of insecurity. There are better things to be insecure about in a long-term relationship and in everything else. (laughs) Better focuses, better places to put that kind of anxiety than something we just all, again, accept to be true. You can't meet all your partner's sexual needs, all your partner's sexual fantasies. That's the conversation you need to have with your husband. Can you create a zone in your life, in your marriage, where you can be this person to other people through your camming that you aren't with him and don't want to be with him and can't be with him because you have a different sexual connection, different erotic script with him that you enjoy very much? And in fact, he benefited from this other part of your erotic inner life finding an outlet. You guys were fucking more and having more adventurous sex as a consequence of the camming that you were doing. As a direct result of that fueling your desire and boosting your libido, he benefited. He didn't know why he was benefiting and it wasn't fair of you, I think, in a long-term committed monogamous relationship to do this without giving him a heads up. I don't think one person has a veto power of another person's sexuality, but I do think in a committed monogamous relationship, in a marriage, that You have a right to be informed. You have a right to informed consent. And if your partner is going to do porn or cam or escort, that's not just about them anymore. That's also about you. You are involved tangentially perhaps, but you are involved and you have a right to be informed. Well, now that he knows, is this something that he can allow you to do, to explore these fantasies, to inhabit this persona online through camming with others at this safe remove, no physical contact. Or isn't it? And remind him of all the ways in which when this was going on, he was benefiting. And you need to also, surprised I waited this long to get to this, you need to apologize to him. If he was doing something similar throughout your marriage over the last year, would you be hurt? Would you be offended? If you found out his three-month out-of-town job was gigolo, even if he didn't touch anybody, if he was just an erotic dancer in a club somewhere for three months and he never thought to tell you that all these women were stuffing dollar bills in his panties while he was away, you might be miffed. And so you need to make a good faith and sincere apology to your husband for this shit you were doing in his absence that he kind of sort of had a right to know about. Just as if he was going away to be a Chippendales dancer for three months, you kind of sort of had a right to know about that. And then after you've made your apologies, after you've made amends, then you can have the conversation about whether you can do this going forward with his knowledge and consent, but it can be your thing alone. And ask him during that convo, If there's some zone of erotic autonomy or sexual autonomy, some place that he wants to go as an individual, as a single man, not as somebody's husband. Hi, 
Dan, a 20-year-old Bay Area listener here. My boyfriend and I just recently decided for our two-year anniversary, we're going to be celebrating at a bondage B&B, a BB&B, and we're very excited, but <laughs> they offer so much, we're worried we're not going to know where to start. Um, I know we're going to start watching some BDSM porn together to get ideas. But there's so much out there. I'm wondering if you have any tips for us for how to plan a really kinky day. If you rented a dungeon or a bondage bed and breakfast and there's tons of gear in there and you have zero experience doing bondage or BDSM with each other, you're going to have to take it easy. You're not going to be able to try out all of the gear. You probably won't even know what to do with half of the gear you're likely to encounter in a fully tricked out dungeon or B, B, and B. So my advice to you would be to Keep it simple since both of you, neither of you know what you're doing. You're not going to want to do suspension. You're not going to want to hang each other from your ankles. You're not going to want to use the anal hook. If there's an anal hook in the room that some people can incorporate into bondage safely, but a novice who doesn't know what they're doing is unlikely to be able to incorporate an anal hook into the bondage play safely. And if there's tons of ropes, but also tons of gear, my advice is always to go for the gear. A lot of people who are novices and nervous about bondage want to keep it simple and safe, and they'll opt for handcuffs and rope, which are actually more dangerous than the sinister looking black leather restraints are, because the restraints that buckle distribute the pressure evenly, whereas ropes can cinch and cut off nerves, and handcuffs are terrible because they can twist and torque and hurt uh, wrists and break bones. So you're going to want to stay away from handcuffs if indeed they even have handcuffs for guests to use and opt instead for the restraints. But I would encourage you to stick to good old-fashioned spread eagle bondage on the bondage bed that is likely to be available to you in any decent BB&B. So keep it simple and you'll have a good experience and then you'll probably want to go back. And as you gain more experience, you'll be able to use more and more of the gear. One last thing, a programming note for people who are curious about bondage and BDSM. It helps to play with experienced folks. Find the BDSM or kink organization in your community. Go to a munch. They are informal, sort of chit-chatty, brunchy, potluck things where people aren't going to play. They're just going to talk about BDSM and kink. Go to a few play parties. Observe experienced kinksters playing. Approach people in those environments, big public play parties, munches, who have skills that you would like to acquire, who are good at the things that you want to do that you've seen in porn, and ask them if they will mentor you, if they will literally show you the ropes or the restraints. And that's why a lot of them are there. And a lot of people in that community, particularly people who go to the brunches, go to the big play parties, want to share their skills and expertise with novices and newbies. And that is a much better way to acquire the skills than sitting in your apartment watching BDSM porn and then giving it a go yourself in a BB&B. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Long-time gay male listener here from Johannesburg, South Africa. I have a relationship dilemma I'm hoping you can help with. Most of my family lives in Australia, and of course, the same-sex marriage plebiscite has been a hot topic. For the most part, I've been pleasantly surprised by the outpouring of support from family members messaging me to say they're voting yes. And most of them have all agreed that putting human rights to a vote is a waste of tax dollars that could have gone to much better use. My issue is with a cousin of mine who, long story short, has made it clear that he is confused about the matter, but that he and his right-wing Christian wife are voting no. I tried to engage him on a Facebook post that he made about the issue, but got mostly abusive replies from his circle of friends. 
I then unfriended him and decided that I would just cut him out of my life. A few days later, I got an inbox message from his mum, a church-going Christian, apologizing on behalf of all Christians for the religious abuse that Christianity has bestowed on LGBT people over the years. She told me she is voting yes and that she even volunteers at a Christian equal marriage organization. She also must have spoken to my cousin because he then inboxed me to say that he is sorry if he hurt my feelings in any way and that he agrees the issue is very polarizing. He said it's causing a rift in his church and even though he and his wife feel a certain way on the issue, we should still be able to love each other as cousins. Well, I think his reply smacks of hypocrisy. I want to reply to him and politely tell him to take a hike. I'm happy to cut him and his wife out and not attend family gatherings when he and his wife might be present. But then again, I'm wondering if I should be handling this differently. Dan, help. How do I handle this reply? Go ahead and unfollow your shitty cousin on social media. You don't need his asshole friends from his partially assholey church blowing up your Facebook feed with their nonsense and their bigotry. But I would encourage you to continue to attend family events with your cousin and his shitty wife uh, present because what he's going to see is you and your husband. What he's going to see is other family members treating you to no differently than they treat every other married couple that's a part of the family, every other person who's joined your family by marrying into it. They will treat your husband with that same respect, deference, allowance, and that will send a message to your cousin and his shitty wife that they are behind the times, that the family is not on their side, that on this issue they are wrong. They will also see that it takes nothing away from them for you two to be treated just by your family equally, for your relationship to be honored and respected as a marriage in the same way that everybody else's marriages are honored in your family as marriages. And that can help open his eyes. Remember, people move typically one way on this issue. People go from opposition to support. And it takes personal experience. It takes interpersonal relationships and contact and arguments and confrontations for people to move in that direction. So don't lose hope for your cousin. When you look at the stats, when you look at the polling, people go one way. They go from opposition to marriage equality to support for marriage equality. So don't write your cousin off just because he's stuck in this place right now. doesn't mean he will always be there. Likelier to remain there if they never see you again and they never see other family members treating you like any other married couple and they never have the realization or insight or epiphany that that took nothing away from them and in no way diminished their marriage. So continue to have some contact with him. And if you want to have one more argument with him, I found this to be very effective when I argued with people who were opposed to marriage equality, were planning to vote against marriage equality. I would tell them that what you really want is for this issue to go away. What you really want is for this issue not to be debated on the nightly news, not to be on the cover of every daily newspaper, not to have to talk about it with your kids. And why are you having to talk about it with your kids? Why is it on the nightly news every night? Why is it all over the daily newspaper? Because we can't get married. As soon as we get married, the issue fades. It's not debated hotly anymore except in some tiny corners of the far, far religious right. It's just a matter of fact now. It's settled. You don't read much about marriage equality, say, in Canada because it's over and done. There isn't a debate. There isn't a political conflict that's playing out and generating a lot of heat and light and media coverage. So you should vote yes to make this issue go away. If you vote no and you're successful, not that this plebiscite in Australia is going to decide the issue. This is just an advisory vote, just a waste of $150 million. But if you vote no, that just means we're going to continue to have this fight. Because we're going to have this fight until we've secured the same rights to marry that 
opposite sex couples enjoy. So of no vote, what that does is extends the life of this argument that's dividing our family, that's dividing our church indefinitely. Vote yes to make the argument stop. Vote yes. Give us what we want. Give us marriage equality. And it stops. The fight over marriage equality stops. And for a lot of religious conservatives, it is the fight. It is the debate. It is all the media attention that they hate. And there's only one way out of that. There's only one way to stop the fight. There's only one way to turn off the spigot and stop the gushing of stories and television programs and public debate about this issue. And that's to give us marriage equality. So support it. Support it if you want it to stop. Because if you vote no, it goes on and on and on until in the end we get what we want, which is equality under the law. Hello, Dan and the tech savvy at risk use. Um, I had to say that slowly because my tongue is swollen. Um, I am a single woman in her 40s, straight, living in the Midwest, was single for a long time, finally found a fella. We have been fooling around. It's been really, really fun. Two days ago, he came in my mouth. Two days later, my mouth is swollen, and I feel like I ate a hot piece of pizza, but there's no sores in my mouth. Um, it does. I don't know if you can hear it. It feels very swollen on the inside, and <clears throat> it happened after he ejaculated in my mouth, and I don't know what is going on. Is this a thing? Does he need to drink pineapple juice? What's going on? My mouth's killing me. I've tried popsicles. I've tried water. I've tried vitamins. I've tried lots of different things that I've eaten just to see if that would help alleviate this weird sensation, but it's just not going away. Um, wondering if you or one of your medical professionals that calls in has any wisdom to share on this. It's possible for you to be allergic to a particular person's ejaculate, to their semen. We've had medical professionals on the show in the past to discuss this. Dr. Debbie Herbenick of omgyes.com and the Kinsey Institute and Indiana University has unpacked this at great length in Savage Love, the column in the Savage Love Letter of the Day. Prostaglandins are a substance made by the body that the body is sensitive to. Semen contains prostaglandins and prostaglandins can have laxative effects on some people that can also have sort of allergic reaction effects on others. And your boyfriend, this guy that you're seeing, this guy that you're blowing, his semen contains a substance, a prostaglandin perhaps, that you are sensitive to. It's also, some people believe, possible for allergens to be passed in bodily fluids, but that but the jury is still out on that. What we do know is that you are sensitive to your boyfriend's semen. You can try it again sometime, see if you have the same reaction, and then you might want to not let him come in your mouth ever again. It's also possible that you're having a reaction to latex. Was he wearing a condom before you blew him? Had you used a condom for penetrative sex uh, as a birth control method and then took the condom off and blew him? You may have a latex sensitivity that you want to get checked out or tested. But if it's not that, if it's not a latex sensitivity, if no condoms are involved, Congratulations. You drew the short straw. Actually, the opposite of congratulations. I'm so sorry. With deepest sympathy. You drew the short straw. You have a boyfriend whose semen you're allergic to. Other people find that they'll get a pearl necklace from their boyfriend. Somebody will come on their stomach and red welts will raise where the semen landed and, and hit. It's a thing that definitely happens. Unlikely to be fatal. Your tongue isn't going to swell up to a size where you can no longer breathe, but it is unpleasant and Knowing it's unpleasant, you might want to avoid it in the future. If you don't have a problem until the semen comes out, if you're not allergic to his pre-cum, it's just the ejaculate. You can blow him, 
to the point of orgasmic inevitability when he's going to come no matter what you do and finish him off with your fist and let his semen fly over your shoulder. Hey, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old trans gay guy here. And I have a question about um, disclosure on hookup apps. So I am on, as a gay trans man, I'm on a few different dating apps. Grinder and Scruff, to name a few. I'm not really sure how to disclose the fact that I'm trans on these apps. Some of them on Grinder, for example, which is much more sex-oriented, I have openly that I'm a, a trans guy. But then on other apps like uh, Tinder or um, some of the other apps, I don't disclose that because I find that um, once cis guys see that I'm trans, they automatically make assumptions about me and feel like I'm not their type um, once they discover I'm trans. So um, my question is more about how open should I be about my transness on dating apps? And should I just be upfront about it? Or should I wait until I meet a person and have them get to know me before they make assumptions about who I am? For some guys, dick is going to be a deal breaker on both sides of the trans issue. For some straight guys, they're not going to be able to date a trans woman who has a penis. Dick is the deal breaker. For some gay guys, they're not going to be able to date a trans man who has a vagina because the absence of dick is a deal breaker for them or perhaps the presence of vagina is a deal breaker for some, Evan Urquhart, who writes about trans issues for Slate, trans man himself, argues uh, that in addition to being gay, straight, bi, pan, demi, some people are phallophiles and some are vaginophiles. That is, some people, perhaps most, have a strong preference for either partners with dicks or partners with vaginas. And some people, maybe most people, want their dicks on men and their labia and their vaginas on women. Uh, I quoted Urquhart in a recent Savage Love column. There's no shame in it in being a vaginophile or a phallophile, as long as it doesn't come from a place of ignorance or hate, Urquhart writes. Mature adults should be able to talk plainly about their sexuality, particularly with prospective partners, in a way that doesn't objectify or shame anyone who happens to be packing the non-preferred equipment. I'm sorry that you've encountered some negative reactions on Tinder from guys who weren't able to talk about their preferences without making you feel shamed or objectified. I think you can, should continue to disclose and err on the side of disclosure because you don't want to waste your time on guys who are transphobic or guys who aren't transphobic but are phallophiles, guys who dick is the deal breaker and they need dick and they're not interested in dating a trans guy. We live in a world now where a lot more gay guys are up for and interested in dating trans guys, particularly gay guys uh, like you and your age cohort. So I think that a lot of this hesitancy for some trans people to disclose is driven by the negative reactions they get straight up and it's true from some fucking asshole dick bags online. There's a lot of dick bags online. They punch above their weight online. But there are a lot more gay guys, including a bunch of gay young male friends of mine in their 20s who are up for and have dated and will date and consider as potential romantic long-term partners trans guys. And those are the guys you're going to want to be with. Those are the guys you want to find in that pile of guys on Grinder and Scruff and Tinder or wherever else. You're not going to want to waste your time and mental and romantic energy. You're not going to want to make an investment in a guy who isn't excited about being with you, about being with the kind of gay guy that you are. And so the negative reactions block the motherfuckers. They are selecting themselves out of your potential dating pool and they're being unpleasant on the way out and fuck them. But you've just got to learn to disregard that and look for the guys who are into you and into the kind of gay guy that you are. And they're in there too. And there are more and more of them in there all the time. So 
I would urge you to disclose. That said, the strategy that you're contemplating is another one that I have endorsed in, for people in your particular situation, for trans folks, for guys who are paused, for people who are super kinky, now that I'm equating those three things, that sometimes it helps if people have prejudices or stereotypes in their heads to let them get to know you a little bit before you make your big disclosure because then they have to weigh their prejudices against the person that they've come to know, the person they've made a little bit of an emotional investment in. But if you're super upset about the rejections that you've gotten on Tinder from people who weren't kind to you, I worry that getting that rejection face-to-face from someone that you've gotten to know and gotten to like may be really scarring. So I would urge you instead to err on the side of disclosure and going out and dating guys who are up for the guy that you are. Hi, Dan and the Everest text have a youth. I'm a 37-year-old cis-married white man from Midwest, um, but this call isn't about me. It's about my sister. Um, my sister used to work in a prison. During her tenure there, she became emotionally and physically intimate with an inmate in, in the prison. There are all sorts of ethical, legal, and moral issues surrounding that, obviously, and she was actually fired from her job because of this relationship. This relationship now she had is now cost her her job. It's cost her her marriage, her house. And now um, it's costing her her relationships with her friends and family. Since we found out that this relationship existed, we searched through the public records to find out why this guy's in jail. Employee is a piece of work. He was in jail, most been in jail most of his adult life for burglaries, corrupting minors, DUIs, driving while suspended. He's being sued by two separate women for refusing to pay child support. But most importantly, the reason why he's currently in jail is because he pled to felony assault with bodily injury and domestic violence after him and his ex-girlfriend had a fight while high on meth and he put her in the hospital. I feel like I've done all I can to demonstrate to her that I do not condone this relationship. And as of this weekend, I've severed ties between us. I have a young daughter and I don't want her anywhere near a messed out domestic abuser. And I told my sister, as long as she has a relationship with him, she will no longer have a relationship with me or my family. She pretty much responded by saying, wow, that sucks, but whatever. I'm going to see this guy anyway, much to all of our dismay. My concern at this point is about my relationship with her. It's just about her safety. My sister says he's reformed and that he isn't the same person anymore. And I'm willing to be wrong about that eventually. But what I'm seeing now is that this dude is lying the groundwork for an abusive relationship. She has lied for him on multiple, multiple occasions. She has distanced herself from her friends and family. She sends him money while he's in jail, along with helping him secure other objects that they won't allow him to have in jail. She's tried to diminish what he did, lying about why he's first in jail, then lying about the severity of the violence he inflicted on his last girlfriend. And I don't get it, Dan. She has a graduate-level degree. She minored in gender studies. She's a caring and thoughtful person, and despite that, she refuses to acknowledge these crystal-clear warning signs about their relationship. This whole scenario is absolutely fucked, but um, he was supposed to get out here of jail in the next couple of months, and my sister's trying to get him trying to get him to come in and live with her. Our entire family is outraged and scared for her safety and well-being. I'm wondering if there's anything left I can do to help her end this relationship before it actually starts. I understand we should have empathy towards prisoners, and just because someone fucks up once doesn't mean they're going to guarantee they'll fuck up more. At the same time, it doesn't appear from the outside this dude is reformed at all. And even if he is, I don't think that this is the chance that she should take, given the real consequences of domestic violence. I just don't know what to do anymore. If he's attempting to isolate your sister and your sister isn't just becoming more and more isolated as you guys pull back from her, but if this is him 
the last thing you want to do is give him what he wants and isolate your sister. So you need to keep lines of communication open with your sister, even if she's in a relationship that you disapprove of, even if she's with someone that you don't want around your children or at your family events. And you can invite her and not invite him and you can make it clear that she is welcome, he is not. But at the very least, keep lines of communication open with her. If indeed she's getting into a relationship with someone who's a domestic abuser, if there are red flags that everyone else is able to see except her, the message you want to send her is, look, look at these red flags. We're all very concerned for you. You are in love. You are blinded at the moment to these red flags, as many victims of abuse tend to be at this stage in a relationship. When you come around, when you need us to help you extricate yourself from this relationship, we're there for you. We're here for you right now when you need to talk when you need help because you don't want to put your sister in the position of not wanting to be honest with you about what's going on in her relationship or honest with herself about what's going on in her relationship because she doesn't want you guys to have been right all along because her ego gets wrapped up in defending the relationship against your attacks. And if she says he's a great person says he's a great person and who knows, maybe he reformed, maybe he's going to come out and five years is going to go by and it's going to be a wonderful relationship and you guys will all reconcile but she, you don't want to put her in a position where she's defended this guy as a great person and then can't admit to herself that he isn't the great person that she told her family that he was. And she winds up staying with him just not to lose face and staying in a shitty, awful relationship because she doesn't want to go to her family and ask for their help because she's not in contact with them anymore and they won't talk to her anymore or because she doesn't want to admit to them that they were right and she was wrong all along and now she needs their help. That's embarrassing and humiliating. And you don't want your sister, who you love, to stay in an abusive relationship indefinitely because she's – Worried about losing face. Worried about you guys saying, we told you so. And that's something else you should tell her right now. When you come to your senses, if indeed this guy is abusive, if he is the person that we believe him to be and that all signs point toward, we are not going to say we told you so when you come to us for help to get out. We will love you. We will support you. We will keep lines of communication open. And I detect a tiny ray of hope here in the fact that he's still in prison and right now he is working her for contraband and money she may just be a mark. She may not be anyone he's interested in continuing to see once he's out. She worked in the prison. He worked his charm on her, whatever his charms might be, and is exploiting her and exploiting her affection for him, exploiting her narcissism perhaps. Maybe she's one of those women who believes that she can take a very damaged man and fix him because the power of her love is so insanely tremendous that it can – it's chemotherapy and it's going to cure his everything cancer – and he may get out and want nothing to do with her. He may get out and have other women lined up. He may get out and bolt because she was not someone that he sincerely loved but somebody he was using. And so this may resolve itself quickly in just a couple of months. Hopefully it will resolve itself that way if indeed the guy is an abuser. If the guy isn't an abuser, if he – has reformed in prison and gotten his shit together and is a much better person now and has been able to recognize the error in his ways and make some sort of restitution to his ex who he abused and, and, and battered and intends to live right from here on out, you may have to give him a chance. But I think right now you're making the right move, except cutting her off completely. Keep those lines of communication open, but you can have a boundary that says he's not welcome in your home. You don't want him around your kids for now. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm an early 20s straight female living on the East Coast, and I'm calling about a guy I've been seeing for a couple of months who, as of yesterday, has officially started um, living in his car by choice. 
Um, so backstory had been going on a lot of mediocre first and second dates, but hadn't really been even attracted to anyone in a solid uh, maybe two years. So I was and am really psyched about the chemistry I had with this guy upon meeting him. Um, we hit it off quickly and had a lot of weird things in common and were immediately comfortable around each other. That also translated to the bedroom as well. Um, he's way more giving and open than anyone else I've ever slept with. And it's exciting to be sleeping with someone I can actually explore with sexually um, without any hesitation. Also, side note, first guy to ever make me actually come. Um, many have tried, so go team. Um, and when we started hanging out, one thing that closely became obvious is that the differences in our financial situations was unfamiliar territory for me. Um, I have a livable entry-level salary. I'm not broke, but not rolling in dough. Um, but this guy works as a musician and gets paid gig to gig. And those gigs aren't always consistent. So I had to learn to be more aware about times he might not be able to go out to eat or um, if he hadn't had a recent paying performance, that was all fine. Just kind of a new dynamic. But then one day he slips into conversation that when his lease ended, he was planning on living in his car to save money and minimize his lifestyle. Um, I tried not to overreact and I asked him a few sensible questions about it. Um, but then I was a little put off because honestly, he had really good answers to all of them. Um, he had plans for safety, for comfort, showering, internet, food, et cetera. And I'd done a lot of research. So I was left with just me saying, but you're living in your car. That's not what people do. Um, we haven't defined our relationship and I've been keeping it casual. So it's not really up to me what he does, but I can feel it getting a little bit more serious. Um, I'm an empathetic person generally and I care about him. So when he mentions something about his day that's related to living in his car struggles, I want to say, you know, oh, I'll sleep here, I'll come shower. Um, but I've been purposely not doing that for my own sanity. Um, I don't have any reason to think that he would want to take advantage of me, but I'm still wary of slipping into any habits that make me question if he's into me or if he's into my living situation um, or resources. Um, what do I do, Dan? I don't really understand why he's doing this instead of just getting a more consistent side job. I don't really know why someone else hasn't talked him out of it. Um, but I also don't really fully understand why it bothers me so much. I feel like you're going to say dump the motherfucker already, but I haven't really been into someone like this in a long time. So I'm having a little bit of a hard time considering that option. Um, side note, he only started living in his car like two days ago, and this is already the level that I'm analyzing it enough to call you. So let me know what you think. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about your boyfriend. Yeah, are we calling him that? <laughs> what? Well, are we calling him that? I don't know. I want to talk to him about this. Uh, I want to talk to you about this guy who can make you come, who lives in a car. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. Okay, except we, we, for the car thing. Why is that such a problem? And we get all the way to the end of the call, actually, uh, before you know mm -hmm. that he's only been living in the car for a couple days. Right. I know, and I was already stressing about it. And and so he he has an, an idea that he may be able to economize and you know pursue his dream of being a musician when he's not making a lot of money right now without having to have a side gig to pay his rent or pay his utilities. Right. And yeah, exactly. That's not an irrational choice on his part. No, no. And I and I like I said, I think I said in my call, I, I like understand he's really thought it through and like has the answers to all these questions. Uh, I just. I think um, my main concern is kind of the imbalance that it creates in mm -hmm. terms of like me having a place and him not having a place and, and you me feeling, wondering if one is. And you feel yeah. sort of guilted every night to invite him to stay at your place rather than sleep in his car. 
Right, exactly. Or if, when I want to, if he's saying yes, because I have a home and a bed, or if he's saying yes, because he wants to stay over. Right. Uh, and uh, You don't want to be exploited. Right, exactly. And, and there's a long history of sort of sexy male musicians, uh, <laughs> like leaning on the women in their lives to help pay the bills and, and keep a roof over their head and keep them fed while they pursue their dreams. And so right. it's not unheard of for for an artist who's sexy and can make women come to freeload a little bit here. And there, <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And you exactly. don't want yeah. to be a mark. Right. So you need to tell him all yeah. that. You need to tell him all that. Right. Yeah, you're right. You're definitely right. And, and I you, think you can live in a car, you know, dude, since, but the, I don't want to be in a position of feeling like I have to invite you to stay in my house every night. Cause I live alone. And for now I want to live alone and I barely know you. We've only been fucking around for a couple of months. And so I'm not exactly. ready to move in. So don't think that you moving into a car two days ago, I hope part of your long-term plan, one of the things you thought out is that you'll be living with me soon and I'll be paying 100% of the rent and utilities because you technically live in a car even though you're in my house every night. That's not going to happen. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and I think I've said part of that, maybe not all of that. So I think that's a, that's definitely a good advice. Um, since I called, we've talked about it a little bit more. And what has he had to um, say? He was less oblivious to my concerns than I expected, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, a couple of beers in one night and we kind of talked about it and I was like, it makes me feel weird because I'm not just your friend. And he was like, I know, like, I know it's stressful, like blah, blah. blah. It's just like, he doesn't have money and like needs to, like, I'm not going to ask him to get a house so that I feel more comfortable. And <laughs> you know, it's just right. kind of my, my own um, stuff, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah I, I, I wonder if, clear. Part of it, if he does become your boyfriend, will you be embarrassed to tell your friends? My boyfriend lives in a car. My boyfriend is what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I will openly admit that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's totally part of it. And I I can't deny that at all for sure. Okay, But this Um, is a different kind of homelessness. This is sort of an itinerant musician, artistic choice and not uh, mental illness, not drug addiction, not grinding poverty necessarily. Uh, Not that we shouldn't have empathy and sympathy for people who mental illnesses are caught in a cycle of poverty um, or have drug addiction issues that have rendered them homeless. There should be services and we should help and we should empathize. But this is a different right. kind of homelessness. Yeah. And, and you don't want to be like economically to... exploited by him. And I think you need to be exactly. really clear about that, that there's a line. And if you ever wind up living with me, you will be paying rent and utilities. You will not be technically living right. in your car because that's like where easing your way in. Yeah. Right. Some of your belongings are while you're in my house every night. And right. I'm paying for all the hot water that you bathe in. Right, right, right. So if we keep seeing um, each other and you want to move in at a certain point or you have moved in for all intents and purposes at a certain point, you will pay rent again. Right. Yeah, that's a good. I also, I think the other thing is that I, I would have him over more nights, but I, I don't live alone. I live with a couple of roommates. Mm-hmm. Um, so like my, the amount of time that he spends there is not, it's not just up to me. It's kind of, I have to be sensitive to them as well. Can I ask what um, kind of car he's living in? Oh, I don't know cars. It's not like a SUV or anything. It's like a normal car. And now he has like this hatch thing on top to store his items. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not somewhere yeah, you small. could crash for the night either. It's not. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it's not a big car. It's not a recreational vehicle. It's not a RV. No. No, he eventually wants to like do one of those crazy intense camper vans where it's like decked out to live in forever, um, mm-hmm. which I think is actually pretty cool. But that will be a long way down the road, like in terms of 
finances for that. Well, you might be surprised that how quickly he could make that happen if he has no other expenses. No know, rent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Living on a musician's salary. There was just a piece on NPR I heard last night where they're talking about older people and retirees whose 401ks were all destroyed in the economic collapse in 2008 who are living in their cars or living in RVs and finding it really freeing because they don't have right. rent, utilities, maintenance. They don't have the burden of you know the apartment, uh, even uh, with rising rents, that they are their need for money, their need for income. They're, they're able to support a pretty decent lifestyle uh, after right. they sort of jettisoned all the expense of having a household. So he yeah. may be able to scrape together enough money pretty quickly to get the kind of you know airstream trailer or RV or tricked out van that allows you to spend some right. nights at his place. But yeah, and camp somewhere. Yeah, totally. But I can understand your I can understand your hesitancy here because it's a new relationship. You're in the, probably in the besotted stage. He's able to make you come, which is such a fucking yeah. <laughs> such a fucking thing in his favor. Uh, and at that stage, you know, you think, oh my god, my boyfriend's homeless. Oh my god, ah, or lives in his car, and I really like him yeah. and I like these orgasms. So you're going to feel this impulse for just wanting to take care of him. But he needs totally, to totally, and I feel adult. that even when people aren't living in their car, so right. and he needs to be, he needs to demonstrate to you that he's an adult who can take care of himself. That's who you want to be in a relationship with. You want to be in right, a relationship exactly. with somebody who can take care of themselves, uh, that you can then take care of at those times in their life when they may need help, and who can take care of you at the times in your life when you need help. You don't want to be right. with someone who's a basket case and falling apart all the time because that's not going to be a relationship. Not a trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. Not to commodify it, like we should all take care of each other. Right, you need no. to be with somebody who's yeah. capable of taking care of themselves and take capable of taking care of you when you need care taken and vice versa. Right. And psychologically, I think you need to get past this idea that because he lives in his car, because he's choosing to live in his car for perfectly valid and rational reasons, that right. he's not dateable. I think he's perfectly dateable. So yeah. long as you have clear boundaries. Yeah, no, I think you're definitely right. I think it's... I think the telling my friends and parents that my boyfriend lives in a car is something I'm working on. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm ashamed to say that that bothers me, but I, it does a little and I'm, I think well, less so than it did when I first called. But I, I think the reason that bothers you is because you know, when you tell them that they're going to make all sorts of mm -hmm. assumptions about your boyfriend, exactly being a totally. loser and a user and, and worry for you. But you know what? They're going to worry for you in the same way that you were worried for yourself. Yep. So their thought processes right. aren't going to be any different than yours have been. You will have to discuss with them your boundaries and, and share with them how his choice to live in his car is a rational choice right now and reassure them that you aren't being used because you've established these clear boundaries and set them at ease. Their concerns and questions hopefully won't be coming from a place of malice or judgment, but from a place of ignorance and no, concern. Yeah. And you should be able to address those concerns. Right, yeah. I think it's it, – I, I can – I had the same questions that they will probably have, but I also like know him. So I think it's, it's hard to kind of just answer those questions when it's someone just seeing that on paper. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully, you know, they'll meet him eventually, but yeah. And they'll get to know um, him or yeah. you'll break up in two weeks because something else will rear oh, up totally. and will be a deal breaker sure. and pull the plug <laughs> and you won't have to ever worry about your parents finding out that you're dating a guy who lives in a car <laughs> who can make you come because hopefully your parents aren't listeners to this program. Yeah, I'm hoping so too. I don't think they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. Give us a call back in a couple months and let us know how the car boy yeah. went. Thank you. I'm so happy you called back. Hi, Dan. I am a 17-year-old bi girl from New Hampshire. And my question is about harassment. A few days ago, I 
posted on a school story on Snapchat that everyone wearing Trump gear could fuck right off. And last night, some guy started chatting me up and then things got weird and I didn't know what to do about it. He started asking me for nudes and describing his dick and telling me how much he liked anal. And I just didn't know how to handle it. I'd heard about stuff like this happening to my friends, but it had never happened to me. And I just didn't know how to get out of it. And so I asked him how he got my username. And he told me that it was because of the stuff that I posted about Trump and that he was a Trump supporter and that I was a snowflake and then I was dumb and then I was a bitch and that just just he started verbally abusing me and using politics as his excuse. Anyway, I told my parents about it. I told the teacher and they were basically like, I'm sorry this happened. You don't have to report him if you don't want to. And my boyfriend is really strongly pressuring me to report him and basically saying that if I don't report him, I, you know, I'm responsible for anyone he's harassing in the future. And I just don't know what to do because if I report him, I could get in trouble for inciting him and probably nothing will happen as a result of it. And I just feel really conflicted and sad and confused and scared. And I don't know what to do. You have to do what feels right to you and what you're comfortable doing. When you say report him, I don't know if you mean report him to the authorities, if he did something illegal, uh, if he was enticing you or communicating with a minor for moral purposes when he started talking to you about sex and soliciting photographs, might have been a crime where you live. Or you mean report him to the platform. If he's on Twitter, if it was on Tumblr and he violated the terms of service, you might be able to get him kicked off. If you're worried that this person is someone in your community and reporting him might piss off this guy who's a Trump supporter and likely violent and you'll be in danger, well, that's something you might want to take into consideration. Your boyfriend needs to stop it with the guilt trips. You have to do what's right for you and what you feel comfortable doing. You're not responsible for everybody else this asshole ever harasses online. And if they kick him off Twitter, if they kick him off Tumblr, he can start a new account under a new false name and continue with his harassing ways. So it's not you report him and it stops or he's forever silenced and can't do this to anyone else online. I would encourage you to block him at the very least block him. So you never have to interact with this asshole ever again. And if your boyfriend continues to beat you up about the way in which you were victimized by this guy, he might be an asshole too. might be an asshole that you need to block as well. Block here, meaning DTMFA. Tell your boyfriend to back the fuck off. You're going to make the choice that's right for you whether that means reporting him if you feel safe reporting him or just blocking him to weed your garden. That's what I call it when I block people on Twitter and other places. Just weed your garden. Remove that person permanently from your online life and presence for your own peace of mind. I do it every day and you can do it too. All right, we're going to take a quick break from the calls to speak with our friend Erica Moen, the cartoonist behind Oh Joy Sex Toy, a weekly comic about sex toys and sex education. You can check the comic out and all her stuff at www.ojoysextoy.com. Hey, Erica, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you? Good. You're joining us from England where you're visiting the in-laws. I hope you're having a good time over there. I am. I, I love my in-laws. They're, um, they they think Matt's and my job is very funny. <laughs> The uh, prime minister there is 70% less idiotic than our president, 70% less odious and toxic than our president. Still odious, still idiotic, still toxic, but it must. It, it's, it, I've been to Europe since Trump was elected a couple of times, and it, 
you breathe a little easier, don't you? You just feel like, ah, I'm in a place that's ruled by maybe a moron, but not a stark, raving, mad, idiotic, sexist, sex predator, tweeter-in-chief <laughs> asshole. Uh, and you do, uh, you do breathe a little easier while you're out of the country, don't you? Well, sort of, but here's the thing. I was um I was hanging out while my husband was was climbing a wall with his brother, and because I guess that's a thing they do in England. And I was sitting with this guy, and I said, "Oh yeah, I'm from America." Da 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 da. And he was saying, "Oh, wish I could go to America." And without even thinking, I just said, "Have you seen the news?" <laughs> like it was, it really came out of me. He was like, "Well, you know, grass is always greener." We're we we voted leave, you know, and so it's like, oh, that's right. You don't have Trump, but you guys are leaving the EU. You are kind of fucked. Oh, my God. The exchange rate on the dollar and the pound right now is awesome well, for me, not for them. Yeah. And, you know, Europe isn't entirely in the clear. The right wing mm-hmm. AFD party in Germany did really well in the elections there. But this is not what we had you on the show to talk about. This is not what we want to talk about. We have you on regularly to do a sex toy recommendation since you write about sex toys and nobody does a deeper dive into sex toys than you and Matt, co-creator or co-author. What would you call Matt? Uh, co-creator. Co-creator of Ojoy Sex Toy, your husband, Matt. So what's the sex toy rec this time for our listeners? <laughs> Okay, well, this time I have I asked Matt, I was like, oh, shit, what should I recommend this time? And he was saying the Enjoy butt plugs. And that's one that, you know, regardless of what kind of body you have, everybody's got a butthole, or at least I hope. Otherwise, you got some serious troubles. But um, the Enjoy butt plug is just, uh, it's the best. Like, it's the best there's ever been. The, nothing can top it. And there's other, like, we found other nice ones, and we've written good reviews for other ones. But really, like... The gold standard or the sterling silver standard is the Enjoy butt plug. I, I think it's a stainless steel standard. Tell us about Enjoy. Oh, butt stainless plugs steel and what makes them <laughs> unique. Right, they are stainless steel, and um, like they're just this solid mass. There's this real heft to them. Mm-hmm. They're they're heavy, and when they go in your ass, it, they they slip right in. They have this really lovely shape to them. Um, and, and I'm saying them because there's three different sizes. There's small, medium, large, and then you can go like super duper large, but that's the, the extra size. And um, There's small, they're, medium, they're large, and conversation piece. Yes, an art piece on the on the counter. Um, yeah, they're, they just – they feel like magic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean whether you're holding it in your hand or whether it's in your ass, they're just – they're so present and heavy and – it, 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 they really feel substantial. Um, not like substantial as in stretching your ass out, but just like, yeah, there is an object in there and it feels good. And not that I'm speaking from personal experience, but I've heard from of friends who are uh, proud owners of Enjoy Butt Plugs that there's something about the weight of it when you move around and shift around. It doesn't mm-hmm. just like go where your body goes a little bit. Like it moves with you in this way where you sense its presence. If you change positions, yeah. it has to sort of be brought along with you and its weight will shift as your weight shifts and that provides an extra layer of pleasure and stimulation and interaction with your butt plug. Thank you so much for saying that because I couldn't figure out. It's like, it's heavy. I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's, it's heavy. No, what you said, that's 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 what I was thinking. <laughs> they are they are pricey, which is an issue for some people. What, they are. Enjoy, Enjoy is like a high-end product. It's a, they are the sort of Rolls Royce of, of insertion toys. Uh, it's made of stainless steel, come in beautiful packaging, but they, they cost. How much are these butt plugs that you're pushing on my broke-ass readers? How much are they, or listeners, how much do they cost? <laughs> uh, for the smallest one, it's 65, and then the biggest one is 85, and the middle one is probably 75, I would assume. And uh, yeah, they, they are more expensive, but here's the thing. like 
it's going to last you your lifetime. And because they're stainless steel, that means they're not porous. So they will never absorb any body juices that you produce. So cleaning them, I mean, like stainless steel is what they use in medical procedures. The, the, the tools are always stainless steel because like you can sanitize them really easily. Just soap and water, really. Yeah, you don't need an autoclave. Um, we should point out to, no. to, to sanitize the stainless steel butt plug. Just a little soap and hot, hot water. You can run them through the dishwasher too if you want to be mm-hmm. extra crazy safe about it. But I just want to say, you know, I've gotten people, I've recommended Enjoy butt plugs in the past or Enjoy insertion toys and people go, oh my God, they're so expensive. And just like, I think of those ads in the New York Times Magazine for those heirloom watches that you'll pass down to your kids one day and it's always some crinkly looking dad <laughs> with his like $30,000 watch looking at his son that uh-huh. he's going to give it to you one day. And you can regard Enjoy Butt Plugs in the same way. These are potentially intergenerational heirlooms. You can pass them on one day to your grandchildren because they are going to last and last and last and they are beautiful. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're they're like little pieces of art. Um and I don't know, like in the comics, Matt and I will say that about a lot of toys. And we're like, you could put this on display. And most people are like, that's ridiculous. But Matt and I, we actually do have these things on display in our house. Like, and not just secretly in the bedroom. <laughs> we we have a whole shelf dedicated to, to well, uh, a whole hutch dedicated to displaying a whole bunch of toys that we think look really neat. And yeah, the Enjoys are are absolutely some of those. They're just, they're gorgeous. They'll last you a lifetime. They're worth the money, honestly. Like, yeah, they're they're a lot right now. But the way I think about it is, like, take that money, let's say the $65, and then think how many years you're going to have this toy. And let's just say, like, 20 years. And what's 65 divided by 20? I can't do math. A lot. but no, Not a lot. Very yeah. little. Very little. Very little. So, like, just think it's that very little amount that you're paying each of those 20 years. And it's, you know, then it's that's totally worth it, right? It's totally worth it. One logistical issue about these butt plugs, there are people out there, and again, I am not speaking from personal experience, who like to, you know, they themselves go out with a plug in as an act of submission or just like a dirty, Mm. naughty secret that they have or or put a plug in somebody else and take them out. This is not the plug to do that with because of the weight of it. If you walk around with an Enjoy butt plug in, it's going to fall out. And if you're wearing, say, a skirt, it's going to hit the floor (laughs) with a clang. If you're going panty-free and wearing a skirt, you don't want to be running around the bars and clubs or the SM party with an Enjoy butt plug-in, unless you're trying to attract attention to yourself, in which case, perfect option. That's a time when a lighter, uh, less weighty, less hefty butt plug uh, is the way you want to go if you want to wear it out in the world. Yeah, like just a cheaper one, a silicone one. Uh, Yeah, but this this is the special good times in the home times but plug that you want to have okay, give us their website before i plug yours okay their website it is n as in the letter n joytoys.com enjoytoys.com erica moen she is the cartoonist and co-creator with her husband matt of oh joy sex toy a weekly comic about sex toys and sex education it is terrific you have three books out now collections of the comics that are great and i recommend them and they're a terrific resource Yes, and the fourth is going to come out in just the next couple of months. And we have a coloring book that you can get at most adult stores. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Erica Moen. Great talking to you. Can't wait to talk to you again. Great. Can't wait to talk to you, too. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 20-something woman calling from Toronto, Canada. I'm calling because my sister-in-law is planning on getting married next month, um, very early in the month. She met this guy in March of this year, and they have a long-distance relationship. He lives in Texas, and she lives here in Toronto. They've only met in person four times, including the night they met at a club here in Canada. Also, and this part doesn't matter to me, but he is Muslim and Somali-American. 
her dad, my husband's stepfather, is just a little bit racist, and her dating him was already a bit of a problem. Um, but now that they want to get married and so soon, both the parents are, are flipping out. They looked up all this stuff online about Muslims and Muslim men and Muslim men marrying white women to make more Muslim babies and how Muslim men are abusive in their marriages and they don't respect women and all of this nonsense. Um, they also think, in addition to this stuff, they also think that the marriage is for him to get his family into Canada since Somalia is on Trump's travel ban list and it looks like it's going to be more difficult for them to come to America. They think that he's brainwashing her because she started looking into the religion of Islam and is maybe reading the Quran and she stopped eating all pork products. Um, somehow they figured out how to do this background check on him and they found out that he's been married before. Uh, he has two kids from his previous marriage and he's older than what they originally thought he was. He said that he was 36, but it turns out he's actually 40. Um, so in talking with them, it turns out my sister-in-law and him, their plan is for her to quit her job, sell her condo, move to Texas and live uh, in his family's house while they set up a convenience store for them to both work at, which would be their new jobs. Apparently, his family owns a chain of convenience stores or something like that. Um, they confronted her with all of this stuff that they researched and all this stuff they found. Um, and so obviously they had a huge argument and now they're not talking to each other. They told her all this stuff and they told him, told her to break up with him immediately. And obviously she didn't do that. My sister-in-law is 30 years old, but she's extremely gullible and naive. And honestly, she acts like she's 12 sometimes. She's extremely immature for her age. Um, she doesn't really have any friends to speak of. And she always had a history of sort of abusive and controlling boyfriends. Um, if it is a marriage to dupe someone into marrying him to get his family into Canada, then she is pretty much the perfect target. That being said, I'm an optimist, and I like to assume the best in people. So I'm working from the theory that they're both just moving way too fast and making poor decisions, and that's it. So my question is this. What should my husband and I really do from here? Should we tell my sister-in-law that we support her decision to marry him and ask to come to the wedding and, and you know, be there for her? Or should we tell her that she's making a huge mistake and try to talk her out of it? Um, do you think that this guy really is using her? Or do you think that they're just being idiots right now? Um, I already called out the parents for being, for really overreacting about the Muslim part of it. I told them that that thing about the Muslim babies was just bullshit and that a person can be abusive of any race or religion and that tons of white people don't respect women. It's, you know, all of that stuff, put that aside. Um, the mom, my husband's mother, is more focused on speed of the whole situation, but her dad, the sister's dad, is definitely most upset about the Muslim aspect and keeps bringing that up over and over again. So hopefully you can give me some insights into this family situation that I have. What little girl doesn't dream of moving to Texas someday and working in a convenience store for the rest of their life? Uh your sister-in-law is 30 years old. She's an adult. She can make her own choices. There are certainly some red flags here around the pace of this. What's the fucking rush? It might be more productive if the family focused on that, that if she does love this guy and he is who she believes him to be, he would consent to a nice long engagement because he would be able to recognize that this is pretty quick. Four meetings, an LDR, that hasn't been going on very long and marriage and moving and 
going into business together and working in a convenience store for the rest of your life? What's the fucking rush? There's no way for you to prove that he's going to abuse her or use her. That just has to play out in time. I think the concerns of your parents, except for the like Muslim baby's secret super plan to take over the world by marrying white women and making millions of Muslim babies or finagling their way into Canada. I think the racism and Islamophobia there is a problem. But I think your parents' concerns about their daughter potentially being exploited by someone who is less interested in her than they are interested in X, Y, or Z not entirely irrational. Too bad it's been poisoned by racism and Islamophobia, but she could be setting herself up for being used or abused by a charming playa with an agenda that isn't so much about loving her as it is about what she brings to the table, what she might make possible for his family, his biological family. I think those are legitimate concerns. And the only way for him to prove to the extended family that their concerns are unfounded is to perhaps agree to that long engagement, to come and meet her parents, to try to assuage their legitimate, I'm separating out their legitimate fears from their hateful fears, and assuage their legitimate fears about his intentions and about the person that he is by getting to know the family and attempting to set the family at ease. And the onus is on him to do that. But ultimately, your sister-in-law is 30 fucking years old. And she can make her own choices. And she doesn't need her parents' permission to marry anyone for any reason. And you, the sister-in-law, you don't have veto power. And your brother doesn't have veto power. And if she wants to move to Texas and rush into what might prove to be an ill-advised marriage, there's really nothing you can do to stop that. And the harder you push, the likelier she is to double down on how much she loves this guy, how much... She loves him and she ultimately, ironically, becomes likelier to rush into this marriage to prove you all wrong. So you might want to dial back the intensity of the family's opposition a bit and try to have some calm conversations that allow for this guy perhaps being, despite not the Muslim thing, despite the rush, being a good and decent person that she could have a good and decent life with, but that she needs to scrutinize his intentions because of the rush, because of the pace of this, that the bar for scrutiny is set a little higher, not because of the Muslim thing, because of the rush thing. Abusers tend to rush people into making premature commitments while they're still in the ecstatic, brand new, besotted stage of the relationship. Beware people who try to rush you into marrying or committing or moving in right away. That's the conversation you need to have with your sister. So she goes in with her eyes open and she needs to know, again, like the caller earlier in the program, she needs to know that she has her family's love and support, whatever choices she makes, so that if she needs to get out, if in the end you guys were right, that she's not too embarrassed to call you and ask for your help. Hi, Dan. This is a question about being in a relationship with an alcoholic. I'm a queer bi guy in a six-month relationship with a queer bi woman. She uh, formerly identified as Polly, but no longer does, but still wants an open relationship. We started out as monogamous, but after a few months, opened it up to a limited extent, hooking up as a couple with other people, so threesomes, couples, hookups, etc., but never apart from each other or individually or in secret. The issue is that she's an alcoholic, seeing a substance abuse therapist and working really hard on it, but she does fall off the wagon occasionally. And when she does, she drinks really hard, goes wild. By her own admission, her filters and self-control kind of drop. Uh, when she's really drunk, she'll make statements like telling me that the one thing she can guarantee me is that at some point she's going to cheat on me and she'll hate herself for it, but it'll probably happen. 
another time saying that for her, blowjobs don't have the same emotional weight and it's just something fun she can do with friends or acquaintances and it's no big deal. Or else in a drunken haze falling asleep, she'll, for example, mumble about giving a blowjob to a friend she visited in Florida, even though at the time she insisted nothing happened. The challenge is that if I try to have an honest conversation about these statements the next day, she'll get really angry at me for taking these statements seriously and insist they're just drunken trash talk and quote her therapist to the effect that the alcoholic mind changes when under the influence and one might say things that have no basis in reality and I'm just being jealous and weird and controlling and she would never do that because she loves me too much and doesn't want to lose me. So the question is, am I being a fool? Is she giving me all the signs that my gut instinct is right and that she's hooking up with the other people? The relationship is amazing otherwise when she's sober. The sex is truly transcendent and has opened me up to areas I always wanted to explore but never could with other partners. I really want to make it work, even if that means opening it up completely, but only in a 100% honest manner. But even when I suggest that, she insists she doesn't want it because she's afraid she'd lose me if we did. Any advice, much appreciated. Thanks. In vino veritas, as they used to say in ancient Rome, in wine truth, not always the truth, though. Sometimes people get drunk and, indeed, bullshit comes flying out of their mouths. Sometimes, though, people get drunk, tell the truth, and later, when they sober up, they deny that that was the truth. How do you know which it is? I don't know. You can't hook your occasionally off-the-wagon girlfriend to a lie detector test that's going to measure her blood alcohol level at the same time. I am concerned, though, that you've only been dating this woman for six months and there's already a pattern that you've detected of her falling off the wagon, of you guys having these conversations about all the guys she's blowing. How often does this alcoholic in treatment fall the fuck off the wagon? Sounds like she's an active alcoholic if she's falling off the wagon at regular intervals in the last six months and whoever's treating her isn't doing a really good job and she's not really committed to sobriety and perhaps keeping other men's cocks out of her mouth. I think your best course of action is to embrace the worst case scenario here. The worst case scenario is she's giving blowjobs to randos and friends. And are you okay with that? If you're not okay with that, I think you should go. If you are okay with that, perhaps you should stay. If you're not okay with that being something that she does, that's in violation of, whatever openness agreement that you two have, maybe you should go. Because when you offer her a completely open relationship, she turns it down. And I suspect that it's probably because she doesn't want you to have the same license, sober or drunk, that she allows herself when she's drunk. That she wants you to have rules and she wants a kind of get drunk, get out of free card because you're drunk card for herself. That's my hunch. But I don't know her. You know her. I'm not in the room with her. You're in a better position to judge, perhaps, her truthiness, not just her drunkiness. Hi, I'm calling in regards to episode 570 about the young man who had uh, lost respect for his professor uh, because the professor was pursuing one of his former students. Maybe he lost respect for the prof because the prof is a fucking cliché. Come on, a man in his 50s, a professor who pursues a 22-year-old student, and, oh, I'm getting separated from my wife. Oh, my God. Are the, is this for real? Okay, look, yes, it's not necessarily awful if she is a former student as opposed to a current student. But if she's 22, he waited all of about five seconds to pursue her. It may not be the grossest thing in the world, but there's still a sketch factor here. Educators really have to be careful if they're going to romantically pursue a student 
And this one has the stink of unethical behavior all over it. I think he's completely, I think the caller is completely within his rights to find this at least a little weird. Hi, I'm calling with a comment uh, regarding the gentleman on episode 570 with the mother who is teaching his, his young daughter to pray and then telling her to keep it a secret. My jaw dropped. That is so unacceptable. And I'm just 100% with Dan that it's not praying in front of the kid that's a problem. It's instructing the kid to lie about it. And I just want to add that behavior coming from a trusted grown-up is setting that child up to believe that other grown-ups telling them, oh, no, this is a secret you keep from mommy and daddy is an acceptable thing. In other words, it's setting that kid up to be exploited by adults who are much, much worse than grandma and granddad. So they need to not only have a conversation with grandma about that, they need to sit down with dad and grandma and the kid and have some sort of apology about, no, this is not how we do it in this family. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 570 uh, with a woman whose husband was about to be fired from his job for looking at porn at work. I think you really missed the point here. You should never look at porn on a work computer, period. It's completely inappropriate. There's nothing wrong with looking at porn, and there's also nothing wrong with an employer saying, you looked at porn at work. Get the fuck over it. Stop doing that. It's really inappropriate. It's all about what's appropriate for the venue. And looking at porn at work is really inappropriate. And we're going to leave it there. Quick programming note. Savage Lovecast presents Dan Savage, that's me, and New York Times bestselling author Esther Perel, author of Mating in Captivity, and the new book, The State of Affairs, Rethinking infidelity we are going to be appearing together in seattle at the egyptian theater on october 12th and friday october 13th at the orpheum theater in vancouver british columbia esther will be answering your questions we'll be talking about her book we'll be taking questions together and afterwards esther will be signing copies of her new book and her new book is terrific and groundbreaking and will be very helpful to save a lot of relationships save a lot of marriages that ought to be saved and you should read it in advance of these events go to www.savagelovecast.com for more info and to get tickets again october 12th at the egyptian theater in seattle and october 13th at the orpheum theater in vancouver British all right 206-302-2064 is the number here at the savage lovecast if you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show give us a buzz 206-302-2064 Tickets are on sale for Hump, my little porn festival in Seattle and Portland. The kickoff for next year's festival at Hump 2017 is still touring the country. Go to humpfilmfest.com for information and tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Erica Moen on Twitter at Erica Moen. That's Erica with a K. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks.